Hey everyone, how's it going? Laszlo Montgomery again. Today's episode covers the life of Carl Crow. Yeah, I know, you probably never heard of him. I didn't either. One of my listeners sent me the suggestion, and frankly, I had never heard of him. So I looked for him on, uh, on the Google, and after a cursory glance, I said, this would be a great future topic. And when I searched for books on Carl Crow, I really struck gold. British author and fascinating China expert Paul French wrote this book called Carl Crow, A Tough Old China Hand, The Life, Times, and Adventures of an American in Shanghai, that was published by uh, Hong Kong University Press in 2006. I ordered it on Amazon, and this is the primary source that I'll be using to tell this story. This is sort of like that um, Sir Robert Hart podcast, episode CHP58. By the time we finish, you're going to be asking yourself, why have I never heard of this guy before? Our story takes place between 1911 and 1937, about 26 years. You'll know from previous episodes of the China History Podcast that China had seen better times than the first two quarter centuries of the 20th century. In the early part of the 20th century, the Western powers in Japan were, to a great extent, running roughshod all over China, basking in the afterglow of all the unequal treaties and enjoying the full advantage of a toothless and unpopular government in the North. Between the time Karl Crow landed in Shanghai in July 1911 and when he left as the Japanese bombs came raining down on the city in 1937, China began to transform itself, and he had nice courtside seats to watch it all happen. 1920s and 30s Shanghai is a time that has inspired legends and has left behind stories that have captured the imagination and interest of millions. In 1920-1930 Shanghai, that was Carl Crow's world. Herbert Carl Crow came from the show-me state. Born in Highland, Missouri, September 26, 1883, the year the world first saw electric streetlights. Missouri back then was not as bustling as it is today and was still known as the gateway to the Wild West. Like Gansu Province during the Silk Road in China, once you passed through the state of Missouri, the only thing out there was the great unknown. Carl Crow's father died when he was 16, and like most kids back then, in the same predicament, he had to leave school and go out and earn a living. As fate would have it, he ended up in the printing business and learned the ropes as an apprentice to various shops. At 19, he founded his own newspaper and sold it for a sufficient enough profit to go to college up in Minnesota and then back to Missouri where he worked as a printer to support himself through school. He studied journalism, which was something just starting to be taught in colleges. He left after less than a year and didn't graduate. In fact, he didn't attend too many classes either, as his work for the newspaper took up most, if not all, of his time. From there, he moved to Texas and worked at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. There, he learned more about what makes a newspaper successful. He learned about how to sensationalize news and create headlines that sold papers, he spent some time in Mexico and got his first taste of living outside the friendly confines of the United States. 
He supplemented his income by becoming a writer and was even writing stories for the venerable Saturday Evening Post. Well, you know how life is. Suddenly, one day out of nowhere, 1910, Carl Crow gets an offer to help set up a newspaper in Shanghai called the China Press, the Da Lu Bao. It was a project led by another great journalist and native son of Missouri named Walter Williams. Very interesting life, but won't get into it here. Now, 1910, this is a decade after the Boxer Rebellion, so China had earned a reputation in the U.S. as a wild nation where an American could easily get his throat slit and pockets cleaned out by some robber. It was considered a wild and dangerous place, and as Carl Crow later wrote, he didn't know back then if he got to China from Missouri via the Atlantic or the Pacific. June 1911, he sets out. This was three years after Sir Robert Hart had left after nearly half a century of service in China. Carl Crow arrived the following month, and right away he's earning the equivalent of $300 a month covering the diplomatic beat. His fellow Missourian, and the one who got him into this mess, Tom Millard, he served as editor-in-chief. This newspaper, the China Press, this was the first American-style newspaper in Shanghai. So, summer of 1911, you all know what's going to happen. The place is about to explode. The Wuchang uprising is less than a few months away. But young Carl Crow from southern Missouri, he's just shy of his 28th birthday, working at a newspaper where he had to wear a dozen hats, not to mention find local stories to write and then get them printed, day in, day out. The offices started off on Sichuan Road, off the Bund, and later out of 14 Jiujiang Road, which today has got to be some of the priciest real estate in the world. One block off the Shanghai Bund and a block south of the fabled Nanjing East Road. That's where their offices were, and they advertised their paper in this way. The China Press. Every year, readers and advertisers alike are demonstrating their increasing confidence in the value of the China Press as a recorder of the world's news and as an unrivaled publicity medium throughout China. If you are not already a subscriber to the China Press, you may not be aware of the many new features which contribute to make this the leading daily journal in China. Among these are improved editorials, color printing, and an excellently produced pictorial supplement on Sundays. Subscription rates, 6 months, $15. 12 months, $28. Outport and foreign postage extra. It was a struggling startup, and they ran the paper by the seat of their pants. Because of his printing background, Carl Crow got his hands stained with printing ink right alongside the Chinese press operators. Shanghai in 1911 hadn't yet become the mythical Shanghai of the 1920s. It was a town that was definitely going places, but hadn't gone anywhere just yet. So the kind of news that really sold newspapers wasn't that easy to find. But the hard work paid off and circulation began to get some traction. By the time the China press was selling 4,500 papers a day, they were profitable. The first investment made was in a new high-speed printing press. The machine was so fast and so state-of-the-art that they were able to run other companies' print jobs when they weren't using the machine to run the China press. Their stance was unapologetically pro-Chinese, and they all shared altruistic visions that this paper could serve as some sort of a bridge between 
the U.S. and China. If Shanghai didn't have enough hard news to make interesting headlines, Carl Crow decided he would go out and find them himself. 1911, the Yangtze River, the Changjiang, had a massive flood. The government was in shambles, and they did nothing to respond to the disaster or the suffering of those affected. Over 100,000 killed and millions left homeless. Ho-hum, no big deal. Not pressworthy as far as the established Western press in Shanghai was concerned. The China press thought otherwise. They thought there'd be a future in reporting local China news. And they were right. Carl Crow took a 660-mile journey up the river, parts of which were wider than a lake because of the floods, and mingled with the locals and reported the misery caused by the flooding. And this was one of Carl Crow's passions, going out to these faraway places, far from Shanghai, Guangzhou, Beijing, Nanjing, Tianjin, Qingdao, all the treaty ports, going deep into the countryside and seeing what was going on there and reporting what he saw and heard to the people of the USA. If the news wasn't coming to the China press, they'd go out and find it. But on Double Ten Day 1911, we have the Wuchang Uprising, the traditional line of demarcation that sort of spelled the end of the Manchus as a ruling force in China. That story came to Carl Crow via telegram direct from Hankou, which is one of the cities in, uh, that make up uh, Wuhan. And this provided the paper with the boost they needed, and Carl Crow wrote all the news that was fit to print about the fall of the Qing dynasty and the establishment and earliest moments of the Republic of China. He got to interview Sun Yat-sen and mingled with many of the leaders of the movement. Crow spent the early years of the Republic's existence with gusto. He traveled to Nanjing, placed a full-time correspondent there, chased down news and events as they happened, such as the formation of the Republic, uh, Sun Yat-sen's selection as the first president, the writing of a constitution, uh, Yuan Shikai's elevation to the presidency, and his later betrayal and all that messy affair. You all remember from previous podcast episodes that the transition from Qing Dynasty to Republic of China was not a smooth and orderly one, and ultimately the whole place degraded into the warlord era. And Karl Crow was parked right in Shanghai, just as Shanghai was beginning to stand up and become noticed, other than as a place to conduct trade and commerce, and where British, American, French, and Japanese expats all enjoyed the benefits of being the big guys with their cushy lifestyles and extraterritoriality. And Carl Crow, he was like the rest of these expats, living the good life, golfing, having drinks at the club, and all the other perks that even to this day many Westerners get to enjoy living in Asia. But he separated himself from many colonials in the way he viewed China and the Chinese. He had that fascination that would not allow him to look down on the Chinese or dismiss any aspect of their culture. Carl Crow became a student who found all the differences and similarities between Chinese and Western fascinating. It became a lifelong student of figuring out these ways to bridge these differences. An interesting point Paul French mentions in his book you know, after the uh, Republic of China was established, the capital was moved to Nanjing. But because of the times and the uncertainties and 
foreign government skepticism that this whole Republic of China thing was going to work, no one moved their embassy to Nanjing. All the diplomats remained in Beijing because they thought, who the heck knows if another Yan Shikai is going to come around or some warlord and this time successfully establish a new imperial dynasty. And they were right, though it didn't work out like they thought. So the foreign embassies remained in Beijing, and if they wanted to interact with the nationalist government, they had to head down to Nanjing. So Carl Crow's interview in Nanjing with Sun Yat-sen allowed the China press to gain a lot of respectability and prove they were, you know, no fly-by-night outfit. There was a solid professional core of Missouri-bred management and an ongoing relationship with the School of Journalism there at the University of Missouri. They were committed and serious in their pursuit to make this scrappy American-style newspaper the leading English-language paper in Shanghai. In addition to his work as a newspaper man, Carl Crow was also a prolific writer of books as well. He left behind a slew of titles that all had to do with explaining China and the Chinese to an eager American audience who couldn't get enough of all the news and wonders of that faraway land. His first book was titled The Traveler's Handbook for China, the title of which sort of gives it away as to what the book was about. It was a sort of like the Fodor's Guidebook of its day and indispensable to the China traveler. Well, the warlord era in China, we all remember, it was every warlord for himself. It started in earnest upon Yuan Shikai's death in 1916 and lasted till the Northern Expedition cleaned them all out in 1928. Carl Crow figured out how to get around during these turbulent times. At the end of 1912, 29-year-old Carl Crow went and got himself hitched. He married one of the staff of the China press, Mildred Powers. They honeymooned first in Manila. This brief stop in the Philippines yielded another book in 1914 titled America and the Philippines. Yet with Carl Crow's books, you never had to guess what the content was about. He knew how to title a book. From Manila, they sailed to San Francisco, New York, and Europe, Egypt and Pakistan, and then back to the U.S. to deal with a family crisis and for young Carl Crow to enjoy a little... Fame and fortune. You see, his reports from China, and having established himself as a budding China hand, really got Carl Crow included into the who's who of luminaries from the show-me state. By Christmas 1913, Carl and Mildred Crow were in Tokyo, where they lived in Akasaka, not too far from the Imperial Palace. There he lived and worked as a business manager for an English daily there. And within six months, World War I began. Carl Crow figured out right quick that Japan's intentions back then were anything but honorable. As we know, Japan was, by this time, a highly militaristic society. They had their sights on China, and how best to plunder that place and get away with it. Carl Crow saw this up close and personal. And he was henceforth anything but sympathetic to the Japanese. His third book, published in 1916, was titled Japan and America, A Contrast. He saw firsthand how Japan was up to its eyeballs and all the push and pull between former 
Qing imperial loyalists and those committed to the Republic. Japan played both sides off against one another. Both Sun Yat-sen and the Qing loyalists needed Japan's support in one form or another. The land of the rising sun's intentions were always self-serving, and Karl Crow was one of the early ones to see this and write home about it. He remained distrustful of the Japanese for pretty much all his time out there and had been quite vocal in warning Americans about Japan's evil intentions out in the Far East. During World War I, Karl Crow worked in Japan for a stretch. He was business manager, as I said, for the uh, for a paper there, the Japan Advertiser. In addition to this, he served as a reporter as well. In Shanghai and in Tokyo, Karl Crow also wrote stories for the uh, United Press. In 1915, Karl Crow played a small role in a rather great and historic moment in Chinese history. If you recall, in February 1915, Japan's ambassador tried to palm off the 21 demands on China. And when they first presented the demands in January, they warned the Chinese, if you dare blab about what's contained in these demands, we're going to clobber you. But the demands were so outrageous, even Japan backed down, and they gave another version in February, on Valentine's Day. Now, the 21 demands, we looked at these in detail, sort of, in CHP episode 45, where we looked at the aftermath of the Xinhai Revolution. You know, what sort of happened right afterwards. Well, the 21 Demands is one of the things that happened. And if you recall, Russia, which is still an empire at this point, they didn't like them either. The Bolshevik Revolution still hadn't happened just quite yet. So, as told by Karl Crow in his book, I Speak for the Chinese, which, which he penned just before he left China in 1937, the Russians leaked the document that their secret police had come by through one nefarious means or another, and they picked Karl Crow to be their leaker. And Karl Crow duly reported on the 21 demands, which you could read all the analyses you want, but anyone with any common sense can conclude these 21 demands spoke for themselves as far as outrageousness went. So Karl Crow played a, some small part in fanning the flames of outrage that all people felt about Japan. And this was later reflected in all kinds of strikes, boycotts, and protests. Crow left Japan in early 1950, shortly after his expose on the 21 demands, and returned to New York via the Trans-Siberian Railway to London. This was a trip that he later summarized in one word as uneventful. He arrived in New York in July 1915 and from there headed out west to California and became a fruit rancher about 30 miles outside of San Francisco. But before he headed out west, Carl Crow traded for a bit on his fame and notoriety as a China hand and all-around adventurer, journalist, raconteur who knew how to give a good speech or a good interview. There's all kinds of evidence and suspicion that one of Karl Crow's weaknesses was his desire to be perceived as perhaps more than he was, which already wasn't so bad. So he's suspected at times of being an embellisher. He, more than most, knew what the American public liked to read or hear. Let me quote from Paul French's book, page 72, where Karl Crow is profiled in the New York World, a uh, newspaper of the time. 
The smallish man with the glasses and ready laugh is Carl Crow. His Chinese name is Kaolo. Years spent in China on newspaper work and in Mexico and India have supplied him with many tales of peculiar experiences, particularly in China, where things are a bit different. His rooms upstairs are choked with swords and carved camphor wood boxes, while the latter are in turn filled with silks and hangings of various kinds. One of his cherished possessions is a magnificent ermine robe and muff, worn by an empress of the Celestial Empire who lived centuries before the Christian era began. In uh, 1917, the U.S. entered World War I, and Karl Crow volunteered for the army, and at 34 years old, and with all these experiences overseas behind him, the USG figured they could get some use out of him. But after doing a little background checking, the government found that Karl Crow had, unbeknownst to him, been in regular contact with a German spy, a woman. It was one of those things. He didn't know it at the time, but later on it all came out, and he had been an unwitting aide to a known and later captured German spy. Well, he sort of goofed there, but the whole affair certainly made an interesting uh, inclusion into his life story. Well, fate brought Karl Crow, his wife, and new baby daughter back to China. This time it was a posting with an outfit called Compub, or the Committee on Public Information. He was the representative for them out in China. His portfolio was propaganda. His work on behalf of Compub was supposed to have the right pro-American slant of how things were unfolding. So that's what he did during those years in China. Then came the Treaty of Versailles and China's further humiliation, followed by that watershed in modern Chinese history, the May 4th Movement in 1919. Carl Crow caught a nice break. He had a major hand in the publishing, marketing, and sales of a collection of speeches by President Woodrow Wilson. To make a long story short, as boring as the subject matter sounds, so heated was the debate on the betrayal of the Western powers after the Treaty of Versailles, there actually was a huge demand for this Chinese-translated text of all these speeches that Wilson gave. So, Carl Crow made a killing on this deal. What the Lufthansa heist was to Henry Hill and Goodfellas, that's what this was to Carl Crow, our topic for today. Now, Carl brought a little bit of good old Missouri common sense to this whole world of Western journalism in China. Carl Crow sent out postcards to all known American missionaries out in the hinterlands. Ostensibly, this was to ask them to help get the word out about this book on Wilson's speeches to all these far-flung places, a million miles away from the world of these treaty port areas. These missionaries attacked this project with so much gusto that after Carl Crow had received all their feedback, sent in more detail than one could hope for, Carl Crow was able to create the first direct mailing list in China. Done deal, just like that. And Carl Crow looked at what he suddenly had and knew the value it held. Let's just say Carl Crow had pretty much always sided with the Chinese. He was that type of guy. If you were Chinese and you wanted to convince him how unfair this or that treatment was, no need. You were already preaching to the choir. 
his political and personal slants were always on the side of fairness to the Chinese people. So Kyle Crow is back in Shanghai, his old stomping grounds. He just made a killing on this book of Wilson's speeches. His wife, Mildred, isn't doing too bad herself selling Chinese curios to all kinds of Western buyers and did quite well for herself. In Shanghai, he busied himself meeting regularly with Sun Yat-sen, interviewing him, and doing his best to get the word out. And then, in the afterglow of the Bolshevik Revolution, Karl Crow dove in headfirst right into the fray, not on the side of the communists, I might add. He was a fervent anti-communist and extremely distrustful about Russia's intentions in China. And he was sure Russia would stop at nothing to ensure China converted to communism. During the post-World War I boom, Karl Crow left behind the world of journalism and propaganda, and he took stock of the situation. Given his experience, his connections, and everything he was as a man, as a capitalist, Karl Crow embarked on the next chapter of his life. He started an advertising company called Karl Crow Inc. China was about to enter a boom time, or more specifically, Shanghai was about to enter into a period of conspicuous prosperity. Just like today, where the world depends on China's factories to produce so many necessary finished products and raw materials, the scene was no different in 1920. China was still a major workshop to the world, and the exports flooded out of the port of Shanghai. Wealth poured into China back then the same way it does today. The Bund, as we know it today, began to take shape. Great companies and manufacturing centers grew. The most famous buildings were being built. And this boomtown, over the next 20 years, grew into one of the greatest cities in the world. The post-World War I economy, in Shanghai anyways, truly saw a period of dizzying growth. And Carl Crow couldn't have picked a more opportune time to get into the advertising biz he had already been working at a place that translated news stories for the Chinese press. American companies also approached him to handle their advertising needs by having his firm translate their ads and get them placed in Chinese papers. This business became so big, so fast, that Carl Crow simply saw the future and began doing this full-time. He set up his office in the International Settlement right off the Bund. The consumer market in Shanghai was enormous and growing fast. No city in China was more sophisticated and embraced foreign brands more than the Shanghainese. So right after World War I, Shanghai takes off like a rocket. The rest of China, well, we already looked at that before, and we know the CCP gets founded, and China degrades into warlordism. Japanese are keeping the pressure on, especially in the north. And Sun Yat-sen was going to die all too soon before his work was finished. Shanghai, as we know it, or imagine it, in the roaring 20s and 30s, was just beginning to take shape. There wasn't a whole lot of competition in Shanghai for Carl Crow Incorporated, though he began as an advertising agency placing ads in Chinese papers. Because of the explosion of growth with the Shanghai economy expanding in every single direction, 
his firm was also called upon to also deal with requests for market research and endless translation jobs. Another business that spontaneously arose and which Carl Crow took full advantage of was the posting of adverts or these proto billboards, not only in Shanghai, but throughout the entire Yangtze River up to Hubei. Carl Crow looked at the whole world of advertising in 1920s Shanghai and knew the illustration or images far outweighed the importance of the copy that usually conveyed the message the ad wanted to convey. Carl believed it was all in the illustration, and he built up one of the strongest art departments at the time, employing the finest Chinese illustrators of the day. And with this amazing lineup of artists and illustrators, Carl Crowe began what later became one of the most iconic and memorable leftovers of the fabled 1920s and 30s in Shanghai. He created something that was extremely effective back then, and today in our modern world is still utilized by many retail establishments to evoke an image of the exotic and luxury. This was none other than those Art Nouveau posters of sexy Chinese girl adverts that blended both Chinese and Western sensibilities to promote a product. Surely you've all seen one or several of these posters in your lifetime. A gorgeous modern Chinese 20-something looking all innocent, but at the same time sophisticated, using her charms to promote whatever it is the ad wanted to promote. Soaps, cosmetics, cigarettes, you know, whatever. Business boomed in the 20s, and Carl Crow Inc. had over two dozen major accounts. One of his accounts was Pons, the hand and face cream people, though still a big brand. Back in the 1920s, in Shanghai, it was the brand to have. And it was with Pons' ad campaign that all these groundbreaking ads began to emerge. And they were wildly received. This whole idea of using Chinese beauties illustrated by Chinese artists who instinctively knew what aspects of feminine beauty would appeal to the locals. I mean, it, it was wildly successful right from the get-go. And this is one of the things we remember Carl Crow for. He's the guy who came up with this idea. So Carl Crow was, by the go-go 1920s in Shanghai, a full-blown entrepreneur. He had this ad agency that was the first of its kind in China. They were red hot and fast becoming an established part of all that pre-liberation Shanghai would become famous for. He was still in the printing business and made money this way as well. As I said, he also did translations for other firms and in such an international place as Shanghai, the need for translated copies of documents, ads, announcements, you know, whatever, the need was always there. So between placing ads in the local prints on behalf of a worldwide client base, his own ad campaigns for his blue chip clients, and all the pies that he had a finger in, he was making some major bucks. Carl Crowe set up another office of his ad agency in my second hometown, the city of Ningbo. Back then, if Carl wanted to go from Shanghai to Ningbo, he'd have to take a steamship ferry that would take half a day, 12 hours, to putt-putt its way south to Ningbo. Nowadays, you could get from the Bund 
to Sanjiangkou in the center of Ningbo in two hours and 45 minutes via the longest bridge in the world over the Hangzhou Bay. An ad promoting the services of his firm went something like this. Carl Crow Inc., Merchandising in China. We maintain the largest organization in the Far East devoted exclusively to advertising and can offer the foreign manufacturer a service covering all branches of advertising and merchandising in all parts of China. Our staff of artists, copywriters, and experts in the various lines, both foreign and Chinese, are able to handle in the most efficient manner every detail of an advertising campaign. Newspapers, outdoor advertising, printing. I have to say, I admire this guy and everyone like him who did what he did, picked up and rolled the dice in a faraway land, took this position in China, got hooked on the excitement, saw a place for himself there, and then went on to make something of himself by carving out a niche in this world that he had the foresight to see. By the mid-1920s, Carl Crow was a certified mover and shaker in the Shanghai business community. He made a lot of money and ran a respected and successful business that many of the giants depended on for the services Crow provided. And Carl Crow's experiences and what he learned during these years in the 20s and 30s, up to the time he left, were encapsulated in a 1937 book titled 400 Million Customers, The Experiences, Some Happy, Some Sad, of an American in China. It was a worldwide bestseller and essential reading for anyone and anyone who did business in China or wanted to get an angle on what makes Chinese tick. Between the mid to late 20s and the year he was forced to leave China when the Japanese started bombing Shanghai in 1937, Carl Crow witnessed a good share of Chinese history. He was there for the entirety of the warlord period and mingled with several warlords and did business with them occasionally, once even representing the American Red Cross in a showdown with bandits to secure the release of hostages. Carl Crow was sent to negotiate the release of certain hostages, among them the sister-in-law of John D. Rockefeller. Crow obtained their release and built up a special kind of trust with the warlord known as Sun Miao. However, once the hostages were released, the government moved in and massacred the, the, the warlord and all his troops. 1925, Carl and Mildred Crow divorced. Despite all the carnal and delightful temptations 1920s Shanghai had to offer someone of Carl Crow's stature, he remarried a woman named Helen Marie Hanniger, who, by all accounts, was quite a gal in her day, and as Paul French mentioned in his book, knew how to shake a mean cocktail. Well, just as Yuan Shikai's death sort of sparked the warlord era in China, the death of Sun Yat-sen in 1925 also meant momentous changes. This is where Jiang Kai-shek enters on stage right and things begin to get a little more hectic in Karl Crow's Shanghai. The communists are now in full force. The party had been formed in Shanghai in 1921, and now, four years later, the communist operators, led by no less a personage than Zhou Enlai himself, are busy doing their thing in Shanghai, stirring up trouble by demanding more fairness to workers. Can you imagine the nerve? 
And then, if you recall from CHP episode 55 on the Shanghai Massacre, in April 1927, Chiang Kai-shek put a major damper on the uh, communist activities. Two years later, Karl Crow invested in the Shanghai Evening Post. And later, as more roads were built and more cars were on the road, he invested in, in a magazine called China Highways, which is sort of like this Westways magazine I get regularly from the AAA here in Cali. Well, the whole act of pushing back against these communists meant that there had to be some show of force or secret police or at the very least dependence on criminal world elements to keep everything from boiling over. In any case, once the communists had been dealt with in Shanghai, by the early 1930s, a newer and much more deadlier force began to threaten the established order. And this beautiful, perfect world that Karl Crow and all the rich foreigners in Shanghai enjoyed. This wasn't to last. Beginning in 1931 with the Mukden incident, or Jiuyiba, the Japanese army invaded northern China. There were six years between the Mukden incident and the bombing of Shanghai, which brought an abrupt halt to Karl Crow's world in China. It also spelled the end of extraterritoriality, foreigners always getting their way, and pretty much the whole demise of the treaty port system that had been in place since the Opium War. Although northern China could be said to be in a full state of war with the Empire of Japan, you'd hardly know it from living and working in the international settlement in Shanghai. Speculation was rife wherever gentlemen congregated, usually in the various clubs and watering holes frequented by the elites. The question on everyone's mind was... Was there anything to fear from Japan? Was there some hidden silver lining to all these monstrous things Japan was doing? Would all their businesses be safe down in Shanghai? Would the fighting be limited to the north? And the whole matter of the communists and how much to trust them or not trust them, this too was always a topic of discussion. A lot of people didn't see the end coming, least of all Karl Crow. He had watched events unfold before his eyes in the mid-1930s, and by 1937, it was no secret that he saw the Japanese as vultures who were ready to swoop down and get any and all nourishment they could off the Chinese nation. So vociferous was Karl Crow in his accusations of Japanese perfidy that he would end up on a blacklist. The Japanese were very aware of Karl Crow and knew all about his writings in the Shanghai Evening Post, and he became a marked man. On August 10th, 1937, all Japanese citizens were evacuated from Hankou, again, one of the three cities making up Wuhan. That should have alerted everyone in Shanghai that something was about to happen. Two days later, a 26-vessel Japanese naval fleet shows up off the coast of Shanghai. And then, on the 14th of August, 1937, the end came. Black Saturday. Japan bombed Shanghai and everyone finally knew to head for the exits. One right after another, the Japanese took Shanghai, Hangzhou, Suzhou. This is when Jiang Kai-shek bailed and the KMT shut down the government in Nanking and they all headed out west to Sichuan province to the city of Chongqing, immortalized in the history books as Chongqing. What followed for the remainder of the year 1937, were some of the worst 
atrocities committed by Japan, including the rape of Nanjing beginning on December 13th. So in the face of this human, not to mention national tragedy, Carl Crow, along with 5,000 or so other Westerners, all scrambled to find a way out of the chaos. Carl Crow had to move particularly fast because the Japanese were trying to track him down and hold him accountable for all the negative press he gave them over the years. So with one suitcase in hand each, Carl and Helen Crow left China, leaving a quarter century of experiences behind, including all of his stuff. They left Shanghai forever and headed to the U.S. by way of Manila and Kobe. And then they landed in Seattle in mid-September 1937. Well, Carl Crow was 54 years old. He had lost pretty much everything in the war, but he made the most of his situation. He still had book royalties, and he could still command nice fees, speaking at various engagements. He continued to rail against the Japanese and correctly predicted everything Japan ended up doing between 1937 and the time they bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Carl continued to write books and make a decent living in this way, He wasn't able to live as high on the hog as he did living the good life in Shanghai, but he got by just fine. He and Helen settled down in a home located just north of Manhattan in Pelham Manor. In 1939, Carl Crow was itching to see some action. Liberty Magazine paid him to accept an assignment that would take him to Rangoon in Burma, Myanmar, where he would travel the 620 miles of the Burma Road to Chongqing and report on the situation there. And this he did. He made it to Rangoon and took that tortuous path north. Even today, this isn't a ride for the squeamish. So you can imagine back in 1939 how perilous this trip was, especially for an overweight man certainly past his physical prime like Carl Crow. He made it there and duly reported what he saw and heard. He not only got to interview Jiang Kai-shek and Song Mei-ling, a.k.a. Madame Jiang, he also got to meet and interview Zhou Enlai, who was living in Chongqing at the time and serving as the ambassador, so to speak, between the KMT and CCP. Zhou Enlai never failed to impress anyone and was clearly a class act when it came to meeting foreigners. He spent two hours with Carl Crow, answering all his questions in English without the need for an interpreter. Carl Crow said of Joe Enlai, he was, quote, the most interesting man I have met in Chongqing, not even accepting the Generalissimo. Carl Crow was most impressed with Joe Enlai, and this offered up quite a contradiction to his extreme pro-KMT, anti-CCP leanings. Well, with this assignment in the bag, Carl Crow left Chongqing and headed back home to the U.S. by way of Kunming, Hanoi, and London. He spent the rest of that year, 1939, giving talks and speeches and, in general, acting the role of the China hand during a time when China was on a lot of people's minds. In 1940, he took a long Latin American tour, writing his thoughts down and later publishing a book on his travels and observations. The following year, 1941, his beloved Helen died, and he moved out of the residence in Pelham Manor. After Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, Carl Crow went to work for the U.S. government's Office of War Information, which was 
neck deep in propaganda to sway U.S. public opinion and get people to think the right way. He worked for the legendary China hand Owen Lattimore, who we are going to feature as a topic one day in the uh, in a future China history podcast. Owen Lattimore, of course, the man credited with coining the term McCarthyism. After his war service, Carl Crow remained in Manhattan, writing and living by himself with a single manservant. He still enjoyed the company of those who shared his rich experience in China, and this is how he lived out the rest of his days that, tragically, were fast approaching. On June 8, 1945, Carl Crow died at a same disease that took Mr. Christopher Hitchens from us all too soon in December of last year, succumbing to esophageal cancer. He was buried in Fredericktown, Missouri, in Oddfellow Cemetery, next to his parents. And that, my friends, is the story of Mr. Carl Crow. Perhaps forgotten to most, but his amazing life I thought was certainly worth retelling. He left behind a whole bunch of books, including, of course, the evergreen 400 million customers. I bought a few of his books on Amazon, and I'll be reading them in the days to come. I bought his book, written by Crow, called Foreign Devils in the Flowery Kingdom, which looks like it will be totally enjoyable. If you liked this story and want to read more, I urge you to purchase Paul French's biography of Carl Crow. I use this book as my main resource to tell this story. I left out about 95% of the detail, so go look for that if you're interested. Paul French also uh, recently published what looks to be a good read. It's titled Midnight in Peking, How the Murder of a Young English Woman Haunted the Last Days of Old China. That's published by Penguin Viking. That will be a most deaf purchase when I get around to it. If you remember from the uh, Robert Hart episode, I mentioned that Dr. Mary Tiffin would be publishing her work on Robert Hart titled Friends of Sir Robert Hart, Three Generations of Carol Women in China. I have duly ordered it, hot off the presses in England. Can't wait to read it. You can get the book off her website at tiffeniabooks.com, T-I-F-F-E-N-I-A books.com. I'll put that link on my website and also add it to the list of books in the ever-growing CHP library. And that, my friends, is that. I know I've gone on longer than usual. I hope you were able to suffer through till the very end. This is your host and humble narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from beautiful, and I mean beautiful today, Claremont, California, right on the edge of L.A. County. I hope you'll join me next week for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.